Otherwise, with Shadow Twala, see the world from a woman's point of view. And a very good day to you, Mzansi. Welcome to Otherwise Talking Women on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. My name is Shadow Twala. Uh, Hazel Makuzeni is my producer, and Derek Fordyce is our technical producer for today. Our contact details are 0892102010, email otherwise at safm.co.za, tweets at otherwise safm or at Shadow Twala. Now, in Babies for Bling, UCT-based medical historian Dr. Rebecca Hodges explores how teenage pregnancy became emblematic of misspent youth in South Africa. And she joins me in the studio to have this discussion with us. And then we hear how struggling readers are transformed into exceptional learners from Carol B. McCullough, who is the founder of Butterfly Readers. But first. Chew on these wise words. The Lunch Bite on SAFM. I found a quote today that says, you're supposed to be changing the world and not changing diapers. Enjoy your youth by being a kid, not raising one. Whoever said business can't be fun? I'm not leaving the country. You're a Rand prisoner. Yes, I am. You can't afford to. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to. Most times on SAFM market update with MoneyWeb, it is. Last week, it was all about the Fed. I'm so glad, Marina, that it's over. I think most of us are fed up. Yes. (laughs) No pun intended. What's a bull? A bull is when the market's going up and everyone's happy. And the bear? Everyone's a genius in a bull market. (laughs) And then the market's going down, everyone feels silly, and everyone's unhappy. And the reason we call it bulls fight by lowering their head and lifting up, and bears raise themselves and come down with their their bulls. No, 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 say that again. Join Sikkim Kabat Daily every evening from 6 to 6.30 on SAFM. Otherwise, with Shadow Twala, putting the ladies in the limelight. Putting the ladies in the limelight. Well, joining me in the studio is the medical historian, uh, Dr. Rebecca Hodes. Welcome, and thank you for coming into my studio. Hello, Shadow. Thank you for having me. I need to know what a medical historian does. Well... Um, We try and understand the history of the world through the lens of medicine. It's quite a new emerging disciplinary field um, Mm. in in certain spheres and um, quite established in others. Um, We have some remarkable scholars in South Africa who have been pioneering this this field for the last couple of decades, and there's just an explosion in this kind of research at the moment. Um, You'll see it sometimes phrased as the medical humanities, Mm. in essence, social science research or humanities research that incorporates elements um, from other kinds of disciplines that looks at the sciences and the medicines critically um, and that tries to come up with with um, new forms of understanding um, about how medicine and science and the social worlds all intersect. And what you've just done now is Babies for Blink, which, which deals with teenage pregnancy. Do you want to frame that discussion for us, please? I'd love to. Thank you, Shadow. Uh, well, it's part of a larger research study called the Mzansi Wako study, mm-hmm. which is based in the Eastern Cape um, of South Africa. And we have a number of partners who work with us on the study, principally government departments of health, education, and social development. And then our academic bases are at UCT and Oxford. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot of um, other collaboration with partners like UNICEF, with HSRC, and other, other advisors and mentors. And the study focuses on on the health needs of young
young South Africans. Mm. We've identified this group because there's a lot of interest in young South Africans as the the potential embodiments of all of the the promise of post-apartheid transformation. Mm. And now there is a, a growing allegation that these young people have betrayed us. They've they've become emblematic of misspent youth mm. and of um, this idea that we have failed as a nation somehow. So we've been grappling with this idea in our research and doing a lot of interviews with adolescents themselves because in our work with um, one and a half thousand adolescents as well as their caregivers and social service providers within schools and and facilities and just in neighborhoods we found quite a vast discrepancy between what was being alleged about these teenagers and what they were saying about themselves so the point of the research is really to bring their voices squarely um, into the policy sphere and into the research sphere and say well we're all talking about adolescents mm. what are adolescents saying about themselves the lost generation and, and the doomed the, youth, the doomed youth. Um, attitudes have changed uh, towards teenage pregnancy per se but it's not a new phenomenon it's been there over the years I mean as long as I can remember um, have you discovered why those attitudes have changed is it because we've put too much pressure on them to be this bright beautiful generation that's going to solve all our problems well, I think this, this point that you make about the historical changes is absolutely spot on because the phenomenon of teenage pregnancy isn't new in South Africa mm. and it's very much a global phenomenon. What we've seen consistently, and I'm not a demographer, so I, I, I don't want to um, give the wrong information to the listeners, but what we have seen quite consistently is a slow decline, a steady decline in fertility rates among younger South Africans. Actually, teenage pregnancy is something with a very strong historical basis in South Africa. It's quite um, socially acceptable for mm. young women to be having children, or it is a social norm that exists over decades and centuries mm. um, within South Africa. What's changed is that with the new laws coming in after 1994, which redefined sexual assault and redefined the rights of women to access services such as termination of pregnancy mm. and endowed a new system of social grants, we've seen a lot of changes in public perceptions of what teenage pregnancy means and this growing allegation that it's young women who are betraying the nation, that they're taking all of the rights and freedoms endowed by democracy and squandering these rights. And we see this emerging claim that women particularly are having babies and babies are incentives for social grants. Mm. And so one of the, the main points of our study was to engage with this perception. And we spent a lot of time at social development agencies and, and with adolescent mothers to to come to the bottom of this myth. Why is it that there is this enormous public claim that there are young women who are having babies for bling? Mm. Um, and what are the young women themselves saying? What are they saying? They are saying that some of them may have had babies. We, we spoke to young mothers, but that it could never have been an incentive to get the grant because anyone who has the grant um, or who knows someone who has the grant well understands that the amount of 320 rand will never, will never cover 
the material costs of a baby, let alone the emotional and and physical and psychic costs of having a baby. And what we did uncover was a lot of misunderstanding about the reproductive cycle. Um, and this is partly why we work with the Department of Health um, in the province and with this remarkable cohort of learner support agents that they have, in essence, community health workers mm. who are working within schools identified as, quote, problem schools with high rates of teenage pregnancy and other kinds of, um, of, of health behaviors that are identified as risky. Um, what these young women say is that they have enormous challenges in getting to the clinics. Um, if your family is, is having grants as the main means of income, which was usually the case within the families in our study, um, a re- very representative sample of urban, peri-urban and rural um, young people and families in the Eastern Cape, the family had to decide whether they were going to spend the taxi money on the young women going to the clinic to get a contraception um, or should they spend the money on groceries or electricity. And often the opportunity cost was that a young young woman would not be able to return to the facility um, to get her contraceptive, but she still wasn't able necessarily to negotiate protected sex um, mm. or contraceptive use with her partner. So we were really tapping into all of the the different gender dynamics, power hierarchies, generational hierarchies, and looking at a lot of the, the challenges and opportunities that young women are facing. So there's a perception, though, as well, that especially you went to the Eastern Cape, that a lot of these young women will have these babies, leave them with grandparents, and then move to to a big city like uh, Cape Town or Johannesburg. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how representative your research was, especially Mm -hmm. with the women you spoke with. Mm -hmm. Were they the real mothers or were they caregivers? It could have been a biased sample in some ways because of the different um, forms that we use to um, to to enroll our participants, and mm-hmm. um, but in other ways, um, it's probably probably quite robust and strong in its sampling techniques. Because whereas a lot of these studies are based in clinics, if you're looking at healthcare behaviours. And in order not to uh, compromise the identities of your participants, you know, the first principle in research is to not do any harm Mm. to your participants. And the ethical component of this, of this research is central to how we operate as a, as a, as a team. And so we want to be extremely cautious in, in avoiding any negative consequences for our participants. Mm and as one of my colleagues often says, you know, one of my other investigators who, who's based in England, Professor Lucy Kluver, she says that studying teenagers at clinics and looking at their healthcare behaviors at clinics is like studying truancy, absenteeism by looking at who's at school. Mm. So that isn't what we do. Okay. Instead of conducting our, our research principally in clinics, we trace these teenagers into their homes and we have lots of ways of ensuring that we don't stigmatize them. Mm. We randomly sample neighbors and other young people and have all kinds of participatory techniques to ensure that we protect our participants. Um, But I think that we have done the best job that we could to ensure it's a community sample and not a biased sample of those who are just attending clinics in order to get antenatal care. It seems as we claim our rights as women, and I suppose young women do that, where, where, where's the male responsibility and the young man's responsibility there? Mm. 
that's another very positive message from our research because a lot of the pre-existing literature, and I think a lot of the public claims, tend to single out men as um, as the risk takers or, or agents who who enforce vulnerability. And what we're seeing more and more in this study is something that we term positive masculinities. Um, if I can risk uh, sharing some <laughs> some sensitive information about their sexual practices, um, and of course this, these these interviews weren't conducted by me because it's it's difficult to to speak to young men about their sexual practices if you're dealing with a different race, class, language, mm. gender, mm. Uh, generation, etc. Culture, so, culture, mm. precisely. Yeah. We we have a, a research team which is extremely skilled, expert, and local. And this research was conducted by one of the young men um, within our team, um, and it was about the particularly the foreplay practices of young men, because there is this allegation that men are, are are coercing women into sex, and we have certainly found evidence of that. And there are other remarkable scholars throughout South Africa and globally who have, who have identified um, persistent victimization and, and violence against women. In fact, I think I saw a headline about a, a kind of an internal war which is being waged against the bodies of women and children in mm. South Africa. So let us let us accept that that this is an extraordinary problem. Um, but there are also young men who are who are talking about treating women in ways that ensure their pleasure and their sexual enjoyment. And these are of course very, very taboo topics and we conduct this very sensitively. Mm-hmm. But these young men were were speaking about how imperative it is to them that their sexual partners experience pleasure, how they want to be good lovers um, and take care of their partners. And there was such a, a magical moment in one of these Discussions. I think one of the principal strengths of these discussions is that you start to hear participants riffing off each other and disagreeing and changing their mm. minds and just you hear this explosion of different ideas. And they were speaking about how they, they get young women into bed with them, how they can um, encourage young, men, young women to sleep with them. And um, one of the young men said, well, if it comes down to it and the, the young woman is not not consenting, mm-hmm. he could think about putting something, lacing her drink with something, spiking her drink. Mm-hmm. And at that point, another young man in the focus group turned to him and said, in the simplest terms, that's rape, dude. Oh so he called his friend out on it directly, and it was a very revealing moment in the research to say there are positive masculinities. Young men are checking social norms that that advance violence against women and they're trying to reframe identities as men that that believe that women's pleasure and consent to sex is crucial to the their relationships their relationships and their, their loving relationships. Wow, this is so interesting because I, I just wonder if if we the, the whole concept of lovemaking or sex uh, is approached in the right way and if there are any other messages or methodologies we could use to create more of that caring and um, partnership in, in a relationship where we, we, we respect each other and take responsibility for that mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. Because I think if, if our young men and, and older men, I guess, all men and women 
approach it from the same premise, mm-hmm. then we wouldn't have um, the kind of violence that we experience. And of course, we wouldn't have as much teenage pregnancy because it's no longer a secret. It's, mm-hmm. it's you know, it's something that human beings do. So the approach would be different, do you think? Absolutely. And you've identified this resilience that we found in the study that there tends to be a lot of alarm and catastrophizing mm. and doom and gloom mm. around youth. But what we keep seeing with, within this cohort, and it's a robust cohort um, and a representative sample, is that these young people have remarkable resilience, that they, they are aspirational, they, they want to advance um, and to realize all kinds of new forms of citizenship um, they want to be empowered and to empower each other. So how can we tap into that resilience that exists, not just within young people, but within their families, their schools, um, and broader society? You know, we have these resources uh, residing within, within our society. How can we tap into them? And how can we avoid scapegoating a group of the population, young women, to say that they are bearing the brunt of what is understood as a national failure, and how can we reposition them as as aspirational and progressive um, and young people full of potential? And I hope that our study is is going to help us to figure that out. My guest is Dr. Rebecca Hodes, and we're talking about teenage pregnancy and and a, a study that's just been done by herself and her team. How do we approach the the results of your research? How do we use them to to better understand how to change our attitudes, firstly, as mm-hmm. society towards these young women, and how to also make it a, a topic of discussion amongst themselves? Oh, Shadow. Well, first of all, we can invite you to join our communications board and and to advise us on that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we we try to only do the research mm. and to leave the, the implementation and the policy recommendations up to our expert partners like UNICEF, like various government departments. And it's so seductive to want to make a lot of recommendations mm. for implementation. Mm. Um, but I think the beauty of research is that uh, you are able to look at the blue skies, try to combine it with, with, with grassroots ideas and experiences and data, but also maintain a faithfulness to what it is that you've witnessed and recorded um, rather than trying to, to funnel your, your findings into programmable mm. action points. So we really try and leave that to, to the experts um, who are uh, people like UNICEF and, and government agencies and, of course, civil society and, mm. to, and to engage with our partners um, across a very broad range of, of different collaborators. Mm. And that often includes um, nurses and social workers and, and community-based organizations at local and district level and then national partners and then global partners um, who, who are working in. So while this, the process, all of this research goes into the system, um, we, we should be trying to change our perceptions as a society and our attitudes. If anything, give support to, 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 to these young women and, and give them a bit of understanding and not 
continue to berate them for for doing what they do in their lives. So, I mean, we're listening to you now talking, and I want to go and have another conversation <laughs> with a young person that, that I meet. And, you know, how, how do we interact with, with, with that research? Well, we're seeing such fundamental changes, social changes, uh, especially where I work at UCT. You know, we've, we've been at the, the very center of of the national controversy about how knowledge is produced and mm-hmm. shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are grappling with how it is that we can make this kind of information democratic how do we make mm. how do we make it accessible mm. um, and I think the the real commitment of researchers should be to conducting their research and then to working with their students and with their co-investigators to to advance um, our collective knowledge base and to be absolutely certain that we take account of the hierarchies of race gender tradition and voice and that we are cognizant of the power relations that are at play here um, and that then we also show a bit of humility in in removing ourselves um, when it's not our place to speak or to wade into let's say the policy sphere or the activist sphere to leave that up to the experts. You are such a disciplined lot I must say <laughs> Because, you know, you, you must become passionate and emotional about some of your findings. What happens then to the people that uh, you, you tracked and who your subjects of, of mm-hmm. your research? Mm-hmm. Um, do, you, do you tell them at least what your findings were? Or? Absolutely, we do. Uh, we, have a, we have a dissemination part of our research study, which is very much ongoing. And we do it in lots of different contexts, in schools, in people's homes in healthcare facilities, social development, and of course we, we hope to publish our work and then and then share that around as well. And we, we do publish um, in peer-reviewed journals um, on an ongoing way. Um, I think, Shadow, if you get a sense that it's disciplined and organized, then um, I've done my job here because we... Um, it doesn't look organized from behind the scenes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for identifying it in that way. And, and do we know if these young women uh, go back to school and are you working together with uh, the Department of Education to, to see whether they reintegrate it into continuing their education? Closely, yes. And our legal and ethical requirements, if we have uh, participants who report on harm or abuse or socioeconomic deprivation, then they enter um, a particular cohort of our work and we have a special team that links them with local health services. And our point there is to not create a parallel system where local uh, teenagers who need access to a social ground or who need support if they've been abused contact us rather than contacting uh, local services because mm. what, what happens is that we receive please call me's mm. from teens who are not in our study and we want to really avoid being seen as a resource provision group, mm. uh, you know, an NGO. Um, that's that's compromising to us in all kinds of ways, but it also draws attention away from where people should really be accessing services, which is through public public mm-hmm. facilities. Mm-hmm. And that if we do identify someone as experiencing harm, and, and one of those harms would be having unprotected sex, mm-hmm. then we provide them with extra counselling and support and link-ups to government services to, to ensure that... Um, 
they are able to get the right kinds of education. But we 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 don't want to be moralizing to teenagers, um, to be telling them what to do, mm. uh, but rather to approach them as the experts and let us tell them what their experience. Tell us, mm. let them tell us what their experiences are, and we be quiet and listen. <laughs> And can tell us about it instead. Well, I, I really appreciate uh, your coming in. I, I must tell you, I'm often intimidated by academics, you know, and, 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 and people who study stuff because, I don't know, there's something there and whether one will understand the concept in the first place. So I'm glad you made it easy for me. Thank you, <laughs> It's wonderful to meet you face to face and I listen to your voice on a daily basis driving around parts of the Eastern Cape. Well, in, in Eastern Cape? Absolutely, wonderful. that's where the research is based. Oh, wonderful. And is it, is it continuing around the country or is, is this it now? That's our home um, and then I... I come back uh, for my lecturing stints at UCT, and this term I'll be lecturing on empires and modernities in the history department. So um, let's see how that goes. Well, keep New us undergrads posted. this year. Keep us posted, because it sounds like you deal with some amazing uh, topics and subjects. So Thank we, you, we'd Shadow. love to hear more of your work. And please come and visit us in the Eastern Cape any time you're around. Yeah. That's a beautiful invitation. I will come, because I haven't been in a while. In a while. You're overdue. Fact, yeah, I'm overdue, so I will. Thank you so much. And, and can, is, is this research available online for people to read? Absolutely. Uh, the research report from UCT, the latest research report, gives a detailed account of it, and it is forthcoming in publication in an edited volume by Nolwazi, Mkwanazi, mm-hmm. and Divya Bana, who are academics at FITS. That will be a publication on young families in South Africa. Well, we look forward to it. Thank you so much again, Dr. Hodi. Thank you, Shadow. It is now time. When we come back, in fact, we're talking about... Uh, uh, transforming uh, struggling readers into exceptional learners and we'll be speaking to the founder of Butterfly Readers. But first, Sir Utsi Lesako with news headlines. What was that sound? Was it a tree falling? A house splintering? Or was it a bone breaking? This time, you decide. It's your story. The award-winning SAFM Playwriting Competition is back. SAFM invites all writers to explore the medium of sound, the theater of the mind, and to create a one-hour radio play in English. Get writing now and submit your play before the 29th of February 2016 for a chance to win one of three large cash prizes. For more information, visit safm.co.za. Otherwise, with Shadow Twala, see the world from a woman's point of view. Well, we heard about the butterfly readers, and I thought, you know, we need to talk to Carol McCullough. McCullough. Uh, I'll find out later. But um, they, they, they take struggling readers and transform them into exceptional learners. And I, I'm curious to find out how they do this. And, and they say, you know, in South Africa, struggling readers are promoted to the next grade once they have served time in inverted commas, not because they have demonstrated adequate proficiency in subject matter. How important is it for a child or baby, for that matter, to start reading at an early age? But we've got, we've got 11 official languages, and the only official language to teach in, them, the official language to teach in and do business in is English. So, and English is not spoken by everybody every day in this country. And so, you know, we just need to know how then, if English is your second or third or fourth language, 
you 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 manage to read and understand and how it affects the rest of your life. And joining me now is Carol B. Is it McCullough McCullough, Carol? McCullough. McCullough. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Shadow. And I think Butterfly Readers is such a wonderful name, first of all. But yes. <laughs> yes. I see butterflies fluttering all over Absolutely. the place. And it is born out of the struggle that a butterfly, the transition from a caterpillar to a butterfly. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes a caterpillar, but everybody loves a butterfly. But in order to become a butterfly, you have to go through that phase of a struggle. And that that is what struggling readers are all about. Yeah, I think of Alice in Wonderland, as you say, we'll talk about butterflies. Yes. <laughs> but but, but uh, as, just as I was introducing the subject, I was talking about the challenge of the 11 official languages and, you know, not all of us using um, English on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the biggest challenge, is it not, to, to, to start reading it and is, understanding? It is part of the problem, um, I didn't, uh, uh, let me start by telling you what a struggling reader is. A struggling reader is a child who does not master the everyday uh, feats of uh, mastering reading. I, I, I cannot put it any other way. Just does not manage to read. Whether that child has the best teacher in the world or the lousiest teacher on the wo- in the world is not going to make a difference until we provide that child with a scientifically driven, data-driven intervention. And so when we talk about languages, we are opening another Pandora's box shadow mm-hmm. because our children, because of the many languages that we speak, our children start school with a 30 million word deficit. Mm-hmm. And what they hear up to the time they start school, especially when they come from poorer homes, lower e- economic driven homes, the child hears, clean your nose, shut your mouth, mm-hmm. get out of my face, mm-hmm. go and play outside. Mm-hmm. This is not your company. It's all put down conversations. The child doesn't hear anything like, come, let's go and look out outside at the stars. Do you know that it's a full moon today? Mm. And what comes before full moon and what comes after, the child doesn't know any of that. The child comes to school and hears for the first time that the moon is called Luna. And says, say what? Where does that come from? <laughs> so that, that is our 30 million word deficit. A child from a home where both parents are professional does not have a 30 million word deficit. So, so uh, my understanding, I thought, Carol, we all were born to be able to read. Um, Shadow, <laughs> where did you learn that? I don't know. It, 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 the it, human brain is not wired to read. Not? And, no, not at all. And reading is rocket science. Really? The human, the human brain... Um, can learn to speak, can learn to sing, can learn to do pansula, can do to do any other thing. But reading is a special, uh, it's a special case. It has to be done in a very scientific way. And by the way, the reading research that I'm talking about and that I'm following at the moment is but only 40 years old from the United States. Oh. We have not, even in South Africa, come close to that kind of research. So when should we start reading to our children so that we make their lives easier? The minute they can start making sounds. 
the minute they can start that making sounds. My my husband, my husband's grandson, and I say my husband's grandson because he's my second husband, so he has children, and his grandson Marquis is um, will be three in April. Marquis knows his entire alphabet. Marquis can identify words. When I read stories for Marquis, he joins in and points at the fire engine and says. Names the fire engine and says, fire engine. Hmm. And I show him the word. And Marquise, when he sees the letter F, he says, fire engine. And he's, will be three in April. Wow. So, so Carol, this, the system that you're going to apply, you say, has just come to South Africa. What are you calling it? The Matthew effect? The Matthew, oh, the Matthew effect is, taken from scripture, the Bible, where uh, I think it was Jesus who said the poor get poorer and the rich get richer, mm-hmm. and that is exactly what's happening in our schools. You see, Shadow School is designed to meet the needs of the fluent reader and struggling readers because every subject and every lesson in school is centered around reading. The struggling reader falls behind further and further with each passing lesson. Mm. And that is what we call the Matthew effect. The, they, they, the, 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 the fluent reader gains more. The rich get richer. The struggling reader lags further and further behind. Now, reading is the reason why schools exist. Without reading, there can be no school. That is what school is about. The fundamental purpose of education is to teach a child to read, but to read with understanding so that the child can interpret, can um, make assumptions, can make uh, inferences, draw inferences, and all sorts of things. And if the school fails a child in that regard, that child cannot do history, biology, science, because those are all... Those are all things a child must read. Let me give you an example. So the child reads in mathematics and the child is in the fifth grade. Susan buys six eggs. She wants to hatch these eggs. Susan does not know that four of the eggs have double yolks. Mm-hmm. How many eggs will Susan have? How many chickens will Susan have when all the eggs have hatched? Mm-hmm. Reading. So Susan must read, this, this learner must read this thing, must do the, but the reading and the understanding of what I'm reading is critical to the child solving the problem. But if the child cannot read and does not know what a yoke is, that child is not going to be able to solve the problem. And then, Carol, we have the, the problem of kids being graduated from one class to another uh, who cannot read but are still you know, pushed up. Okay. Uh, and the tendency shadow, sorry, I interrupted you. No problem, I no want problem. To clarify this. The tendency in South Africa is to blame, and especially post-1994. So we blame each other in racial terms and we blame each other in terms of the political, the ANC. No, let me just clarify that here and now. A struggling reader has nothing to do with whether we're having this government or that government. A struggling reader is a struggling reader because a struggling reader is what it is. Mm. And it is a problem that we are facing worldwide. 
And so let us stop blaming each other right here and now and say, if we had this government or that government that died, we would have had no struggle. They were struggling readers even pre-1994. Struggling readers have their own set of problems which must be dealt with differently. So when you ask the question, we need to understand that we... We need to identify struggling readers mm. as early as possible. Mm. And then we need to apply the intervention, not based on the curriculum, but based on the child's needs. And so this is how this process was. Right now, I'm doing screenings at a school. And I'll give you an example. I've just completed the grade, the fifth graders, the, the grade fives. And I screened 35 learners. And of the 35 learners, almost 70% of them are non-readers. <laughs> and so the intervention there is, the next step is to do the diagnostic assessment to find out exactly where this child started falling off this wagon. Mm. And that is going to be, I'm going to look at whether the child knows phonograms, whether the child knows our phonetics, whether the child knows the difference between a short vowel and a long vowel, and so on and so on. And then I draw up an individualized reading program for that child. And uh, I, I imagine then, Carol, that um, you, you need um, participation by the, in, in support of that child, by the teachers, by the family, by friends. It, it, it's a... It's a, it's a it's almost like a, a concerted effort from everybody to assist this child on that program that you give them. Absolutely. It, we are now going to look at a multidisciplinary team at school where all the subject teachers are going to talk about how they're going to contribute to this child's learning. We're going to train a tutor who's going to conduct the intervention, and in that there's going to be a group setting with no, less, no more than six children per group. And then we are going to have parent training programs so that parents know and understand how to engage in meaningful conversations with their children. When the child asks a question, don't tell the child to shut up. Mm. Say to the child, if you're busy, say, would you hold that question for a moment? Let me just get this done and I'll come back to you. And keep to your promise and allow the child to learn. I'm dealing with children at the moment, Shadow. I asked this child the other day, so who is your grandmother? And the child looked at me as if I was saying, do you come from another planet? <laughs> because that child has never heard the word grandmother used in this context before. Mm, mm. The child knows the word Oma. Mm. This is an English, the, child, the language of learning and teaching here is English, but we have so, we've become so used to using our colloquial language that our children are lagging behind. And so that intervention involves the parents. The parents must understand what to do. It involves the church or the religious institutions the child is affiliated to or the family is affiliated, whether it be the mosque or some temple or the church. They too must play their part. Because I asked a Muslim child yesterday, I said, so when do you fast? What and what, what is the purpose of your fast? And the child looked at me and said, Listen, I have no clue. I just do what everybody else is doing. So, Carol, this pro program is big, it's detailed, and there's, there's butterfly readers only in, in Johannesburg at the moment, I, I, I want to believe. How do we get the work done faster so that 
we identify and assist all these uh, struggling readers around the country? I need to appeal to the public out there listening to me now. Um, this is not one person's problem, and this, this solution does not lie in one process. But this is one of the methods we can employ to overcome and assist struggling readers. I need to train tutors. I need to deploy tutors to every school where there are struggling readers so that we can start changing the reading landscape of our children. Mm-hmm. Shadow, our parents, your parents and my parents were known as the golden readers. Mm-hmm. Well, we are plastic readers now because we don't have shoulders to stand upon. But if we can train tutors and deploy them to our schools, we will have golden readers once again in our beautiful country. Do you know, some people may say, you know, I, my child reads, I tell them to sit there and read. And that's not reading, is it? Because they're not hearing. There are two things you don't do with a struggling reader. You never tell a struggling reader to read silently mm-hmm. because they just sit there in silence and look at the words and they don't know a thing. Secondly, you do not ever ask a struggling reader to read in a chorus because the struggling reader does the fish action, opens and closes the mouth without Mm. any words coming out of it. So, pardon me, when you say my child is reading, you must also read with the child. Mm. Mm. Let me give you an example. So, So you don't know where your child is reading, and there are three reading levels that are important. The first level is the instructional level. An affluent reader who reads a hundred words or more in one minute with zero mistakes is reading at the instructional level, but also that child understands the reading and understands the structure of the text. Mm, mm. Secondly, the child can read at the second level, which is uh, so at the instructional level, where the child reads fluently, makes the occasional mistake, but needs adult intervention and adult assistance where the child does not understand. <clears throat> Finally, the last stage is when the child reads at his or her frustration level. Here we have a child who is in the seventh grade, but reads at the first grade level, and all we do is give this child seventh grade materials to read, and the child is frustrated. We need to find out where is my child reading. And there is a website where you can go to. Once your child has been assessed and you know that my child is reading at the fourth or the third or the second grade level and I must acquire books at this level for my child, you go to scholastic.com, you feed in the, uh, the, the, the uh, what is the code number, the I, uh, the link. Yes, you feed in the book title to that link mm-hmm. and Scholastic will tell you this book is suitable for a second grade reader, a third grade reader or a fourth grade reader and you will then eliminate part of the frustration for the child. Carol, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, doing a great job. Uh, where do people find Butterfly Readers uh, online? Okay, so um, my website is our website, not mine. Our mm-hmm. website is not yet complete, but they can send me an email to McCullough, mm-hmm. M-C-C-U-L-L-A-R mm-hmm. dot Carol mm-hmm. at yahoo.com. At yahoo.com. I'm sure we'll talk to you again, Carol. Thank you so much for your time, and we send you strength to continue to do the butterfly work. 
Thank you very much, Shadow, for having me. You, you take have care. a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's scholastic.com if you want enter the title of the book and then find out uh, what grade it is. I found this quote earlier, what a miracle it is that out of these small, flat, rigid squares of paper unfolds world after world, worlds that sing to you, comfort and quiet or excite you. Books help us understand who we are and how we are to behave. They show us what community and friendship mean. They show us how to live and die. That's by Anne Lamott. It is time for Shop Shop.